Uh, I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount. Let me pray, and then we're going to get started. <clears throat> Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for giving us the text of Scripture that tells us what the kingdom is like. Uh, thank you for also giving us the Holy Spirit that empowers us to walk these principles out. I pray that as we study your word this morning, Lord, that you would teach us, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word the same way that it was inspired. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, really quickly, uh, some of you might know this about me. I like to garden. Does anyone else here like to garden a little bit? Okay, I like to put my sunbonnet on and go out in the garden with the pansies and the daisies. Uh, no, I like to garden for food, uh, not flowers. I like beans and peas and carrots and squash, tomatoes, that kind of peppers, although I don't eat the peppers. I'm too, I'm too soft for that. But uh, I don't know, peppers that come out of Philly soil are like hot, hotter or something. And all they all kind of, okay, there we go. So uh, I love to garden. I have a little garden outside of our church offices, uh, and I check it every day that I'm here. Um, what are the, there's two real reasons I like to garden. One is I like to get my hands in the dirt. Um, did you know that when you get your hands down in soil, your body actually releases enzymes that alleviate depression? So if you struggle with depression, I don't know, go find like your neighbor's dirt pile and stick your hands in it. <laughs> I don't know if that would work, but there is something actually in our physiology that when, you, when your body interacts with the minerals that are in soil, it actually does have a helpful effect on you. So I like that. Um, another thing is I, I just feel like I learn a lot about God in gardening or farming. Uh, there are a lot of spiritual principles in uh, gardening, and here's what I mean by that. When you're gardening, there are some things that are up to you, right? I mean, if you plant your crops uh, where there's plenty of light, that's up to you. But whether the sun comes out or not is not up to you, right? And making sure that you water your garden, you have control over that. But whether it rains or not, you don't have control over, right? You can... Uh, make sure that you plant the seeds correctly, get the, the depth in the soil correctly, but if some squirrels or cats come by uh, and dig up the seeds and eat them, you don't really have much control over that. Maybe you could put a fence or a, a mesh netting or something like that, but gardening is this interesting balance of there's some stuff that's outside of your control and you're just reliant on God through nature, and then there's other stuff that's well within your control. There's an old story, it's a joke, uh, about a farmer who uh, had this beautiful farm and he invited the, the pastor from the town. I don't know, this sounds like a story from my hometown. He invited the pastor to come out and he looked at the field. He said, oh my, praise God, look at this wonderful field. All the corn, it's in perfect lines and what a wonderful crop, praise God. And the farmer just said, well, you should have seen it when God had it to himself. Because it would have just been weeds. You get it? No, you don't get that? Okay. Well, it'll hit you later. It's a good joke. Um, so, in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're not going to be in 1 Peter today, but in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, uh, it says that we have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, 
That is through the living and enduring word of God. That when we are born again, the seed of God is planted in us and that it is not a perishable seed, but it is an imperishable seed. So when we follow Jesus, when we respond to God's work in our life, there's a seed that's a spiritual seed that's planted in us. And then we have a responsibility to then cultivate that seed. We water that seed. We give that seed sunlight. We protect it. We pull up weeds to make sure that that seed grows to full maturity. And how do we do that? We use primarily things called spiritual disciplines. Has anyone ever heard of spiritual disciplines before? Oh, I know more of you than that. Okay. Spiritual disciplines are intentional practices that we participate in as Christians to help us grow in our spiritual life. Uh, we actually here like to use the term spiritual formation. We use spiritual disciplines as well, but we use the, the term spiritual formation because we want to understand the spiritual disciplines, things like Bible study, prayer, fasting, worship, serving, things like that. We want to understand those as part of a process that Jesus has us in to make, him, make us more like him. Uh, here's why we use the term spiritual formation. We're going to read for the next three weeks about Jesus confronting the Pharisees uh, and other people about their incorrect use of spiritual disciplines. So for the next three weeks, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, we're going to learn about giving, praying, and fasting. I would call those three spiritual disciplines. But Jesus confronts wrong views of all three of those. Today we're going to look at giving. Jesus confronts a wrong view of giving. We're going to look next week at praying. The first teaching Jesus ever provided on praying is when you pray, do not pray like the Pharisees. Okay? And then we're going to look at fasting and how they did fasting wrong. So here's what they were doing. They had spiritual disciplines, but they were not participating in spiritual formation. Okay, here's what I mean by that. I pulled out an old slide from an old sermon from like a year and a half ago from our series on our church's vision and strategies. This is the definition of spiritual formation that we use here at True Vine. This is taken from the book Invitation to a Journey by Robert Mulholland. It's a great book on spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation. So this is how he defines spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is the process of being conformed or transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. So first, it's a process. Spiritual formation is a process. It's not uh, just a one-time sit down in the morning with your cup of coffee and your daily bread, but it is a lifelong process that we go through. I want you to think of this in two ways. First, the process sometimes is Long, I know the word process is a little bit of a raw word for us in Philadelphia right now with the Sixers. All right. No one else watches sports. All right. The process that God has us in is sometimes a long, meticulous process. And there's a Greek word, chronos. It means time. Okay. It's a, pro it's a long process that we go through. Sometimes we forget that we're even in the process. It can seem at times mundane, but God has us in this process where in small little daily increments, we grow to become more like Jesus. But there is another Greek word for time, which is kairos. And it doesn't mean a slow period of times. It means a specific moment in time. 
Does that make sense? Kairos means a moment in time. And sometimes we have those Kairos experiences where it didn't take five years, it took five minutes. Where we, there's a prayer that just comes from such a place of like brokenness and surrenderedness to God that we grow in five minutes what would have taken two years. Where we have an encounter with God or an experience with God or we hear something or we sing something or we pray something and it's like the whole process is sped up. So in Greek, there are two words for time. Kronos, which is the long, drawn-out experience, or kairos, which is the quick, immediate experience. We do both as we become more like Jesus. Both of those things happen in your life. Both the kairos and the kronos moments of, I would call those moments of sanctification or ways that God sanctifies us. So it's a process where we are conformed or transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. So what is the goal of spiritual formation? It is to make you and I more like Jesus. It is not for you to be the best version of yourself. Okay? Which is totally subjective, by the way. Because your opinion of the best version of you might be different than your spouse's opinion of the best version of you or your neighbor's opinion, or my opinion, or even Jesus' opinion, right? So we're not trying to make you the best you, we're trying to make you like Jesus, because the world needs that. So, you know, the way that, for instance, the way that Margaret rep is like Jesus is gonna be different than the way Justin is like Jesus, because God is creative and he's gonna do it in a bunch of different ways. We don't all have to be the same, we just wanna be like Jesus, but with our experiences and our gifting and our calling, if that makes sense. So the goal here is to be like Jesus. Uh, and then finally, we do this for the sake of others, meaning it's not for our own comfort or entertainment or enjoyment, but it's actually for the benefit of other people. This helps us from becoming ingrown and just focused on ourselves all the time. But you are made more like Jesus for the benefit of other people to serve, to give, to evangelize, to do those types of things, and to have an impact on the world. So, spiritual formation does have an end in mind. It is to be more like Jesus. So when Jesus says to them, I don't like the way you give. I don't like the way you pray. I don't like the way you fast. I think there's a subtext there. He's saying, you do all these spiritual disciplines, but you're not being like me. You're not becoming like Jesus. You're doing the stuff, you're checking off the boxes, but you're not becoming like me. And Jesus teaches his disciples in the crowd, the Sermon on the, uh, Sermon on the Mount, what it means to engage in these practices of giving, praying, and fasting in a way that makes us more like Jesus. Does that make sense? So, uh, grow in spiritual formation is actually one of our strategies as a church. Right here we have our vision statement, make disciples that sustain revival. Uh, that's our end game is to make disciples that sustain revival. We have five strategies for how we do that in our trellis. If you didn't get one of these, you can get one of these from May on your way out. This is our little book uh, that I always have to refer to when I forget what I'm doing. That in the Bible. So we have five strategies. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, value the manifest presence of God, pursue emotional health, live in community, and grow in spiritual formation. If we want to actually sustain the work God does in our life, we need those five things. We have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, 
You guys know how sometimes you get on these spiritual highs? And spiritual highs are always followed with spiritual lows. It's like, man, I was doing so good, and then, okay. Why does that happen? Because we aren't full of the Holy Spirit, or aren't growing in spiritual formation, or we're not pursuing emotional health, or we're not living in community. You know, like, if we do these five things, we'll get there. Uh, for instance, a lot of, we often forfeit a lot of spiritual growth when we throw an emotional fit. You know what I mean? It's, it's crazy to me the, people, the amount of people who will grow and grow and grow in a church or in a f community of faith for 10 years and then because of one thing, throw that all away. You know, does that make sense? Or they, they've been following God really hard. They've been, you know, been a Christian for 15 years and then one bad thing happens. And rather than grieving the loss, they walk away from Jesus because they're not pursuing emotional health. We, there's no way you and I are going to sustain like a vibrant spiritual life if we don't grow in spiritual formation. If we aren't dedicated to disciplines like Bible study, prayer, fasting, giving, serving. There's a bunch of them. I'm forgetting many of them, but there, there's some of the most common ones. Worship is one of them. So, Jesus begins in Matthew chapter 6 to talk to the disciples and the crowd that are hearing the Sermon on the Mount about some spiritual disciplines in their proper context. And he starts with this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full, but when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses three spiritual disciplines, giving, praying, and fasting. We're going to look at giving today, praying next week, and fasting in two weeks. So if you have to skip church in two weeks, I'm going to call you. you got to fast to make it up. Um, really quickly, before I get into the giving stuff that we just read about, I want to put this sermon in context to the larger life of our church. Many of you know that we don't pass a plate to take up an offering on Sundays. There's several reasons for that, but one of them is so that I have the freedom to preach whatever the text says uh, when we get to money. Because now, you don't have to worry that I'm going to pass a plate around at the end of this. After I don't know if you paid attention to the passage, but it's about money, guys. So I'm not going to take up an offering. You can chill out, and now I can chill out because you're chilled out. 
Does that make sense? So I might say some stuff that crosses the line. That would not be in uh, familiar territory for us. I might say some stuff that confronts you. You just need to know I'm not saying it so you put money in a plate. I'm saying it so you can live free. Okay? Ready? Take a deep breath. Okay. You actually did. Thank you. I didn't think you would do that. All right. So uh, what we do as a church is quarterly we talk about biblical finances. Four times a year we talk about biblical finances. Today is one of those days. Matthew 6.1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Now, just a chapter prior to this, Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light shine before all people. And now he's saying, don't do your acts of righteousness before men. It kind of seems like Jesus could be contradicting himself. Now, I'll tell you right up front, he's not contradicting himself. When you go into studying the Bible, you have to already be convinced Jesus never contradicts himself. Therefore, I should be able to dig deeper and understand what he's saying here. Okay? So in Matthew 5, when Jesus is referring to his followers, us, as being salt and light, he says, let your light shine before all men. Meaning, People, at times, are going to see what you do as a Christian. They're going to see the good deeds that you do. They're going to see the faith that you have. They're going to see the sacrifices that you make. And that is going to, hypothetically, glorify Jesus. Okay, so they're going to see it. It's a light, right? We're not, he actually says, don't hide your light. Don't live all of your life in secret. Don't live, walk out all of your faith in secret. But then, he goes on to say, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. So, how is Jesus not contradicting himself? He's really talking about motive here. Because if we continue reading, the motive is to be noticed by them. Jesus has already told his disciples, listen, your faith is going to be a public faith. You're going to let your light shine. But make sure the light is not shining on you. Make sure the light that is shining is directing people to Jesus, not you or me. Does that make sense? So, sometimes you're going to give in public. Sometimes you're going to pray in public. Jesus himself prayed in public. Sometimes people are going to know that you're fasting. Please don't get legalistic about it. Please don't feel like, oh, someone found out I'm fasting. The whole thing is ruined. That's not how it works. But please don't do it to get spiritual points. Please don't do it to draw attention to yourself or make yourself look holy or righteous or like an example. Uh, it, does that make sense? I feel like we can grasp that. Okay, so... Uh, that's the first thing is these, you know, the, the giving, the praying, and the fasting we're going to be talking about the next three weeks. We are not to do these things to draw attention to ourselves. Um, now, Jesus goes on in verse 2. He says, when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue. So, first, in verse 2, there's an expectation that every single one of us is going to give to those in need. We're going to give to the poor. Jesus said himself... The poor you will always have with you. There will. I'm not sure that Jesus is going to allow us to eradicate poverty, but he will empower us to alleviate poverty. 
Some poverty is uh, extinguishable. We can remove it. There are other forms of poverty where people need to make decisions for themselves. So Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. But he also had an expectation that his followers were going to give to and minister to those who were in need. This is not unique to Jesus' disciples. In fact, the whole Jewish community had a practice of what they called giving alms. They would give money to those that were poor. That's why those that were in need, or we would, you know, they, in the Bible they're called beggars, would actually sit outside the temple because they knew that the religious people going in and out were more likely to give them money. They didn't sit outside various other places. They sat outside the temple waiting for alms. And it was considered a spiritually uh, good deed to give some money to those who were in need as a form of almsgiving. And Jesus is expecting that his disciples who grew up Jewish are going to continue that very Jewish practice. They're going to do that. But he says, when you do it, don't blow a trumpet. Don't draw attention to it. Don't make a big stink. Don't make a big scene. Now, you know, people actually weren't blowing trumpets when they gave at this time. He's just kind of using hyperbolic language to be like, guys, don't make a big deal about this. Do it privately. Especially when we get to the motives. So that they be, may be honored by men. Don't, make, don't draw attention to it so that you can get people to honor you. So here, again, Jesus is talking about motives. Um, it is really hard sometimes to discern the motives behind an action, right? Because two people might do the very same thing. One of them can have very pure motives and one of them can have very selfish motives, even though the actions are the same. If you're perceptive, sometimes you can pick up on that. But if you're too perceptive, you can become judgmental. And you start judging other people. The ability to judge another person's motives is, it's very difficult to do that. You know what's easier? Judge your own motives. Right? Because Jesus isn't giving us this teaching so that we can go around evaluating everyone else. He's saying, hey, you. <laughs> He's not saying, hey, when people are giving with trumpets, you know, go rebuke them. He's saying, you don't do that. Right? So I'm not sharing this with you so that you can go around and judge other people's motives. I'm giving this to you so you can judge your own motives. Because if you don't judge them, God will judge them. And there is a reward situation that we're going to get to in a moment here. So we are not to give in a celebratory, uh, self-honoring way. Uh, we're not to give in a way that gets us honor from other people, which shows us that one of the purposes of money is not prestige. We often think that one of the purposes of money or income is to be prestigious or to look sharp or to have a good reputation. Um, I don't know about you, but if someone said, hey, for this much money, your reputation will go up 10 points, how much money would that have to be for you? Rhetorical question, don't answer. But you know, like, if, if you knew that there was a connection between you giving and getting a nicer reputation or more prestige, how would that affect your heart? How would that affect your motives? So prestige is not one of the purposes of money, but you know what 
is one of the purposes of money to alleviate suffering in other people. That's one of the purposes. It's not the only purpose, but it's one of the biblical purposes of financial resources is to alleviate other people's suffering. Now, uh, before you think that you're more spiritual than Jesus, Jesus says that when people give in a way that brings themselves honor, it says in verse 2, they have their reward in full. Okay? In fact, up, there's, rewards are referenced three times just on this slide. If you do these practices in order to be seen by others, you have no reward with your Father, right? But if you do them to be seen by others, you have your reward already. And make sure that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There is a reward system in the kingdom of heaven. I know sometimes we think we're more spiritual than God, and we're like, oh, I don't need a reward. Then I'll take your reward. I'll have it. Uh, listen, I don't know what to tell you. Jesus talked about rewards a lot. There's a reward for righteous behavior. There's a reward for good deeds. And I don't have enough time. Yeah, I don't have enough time to get into this today really deeply. But in heaven, you're going to have crowns and robes. And some people's crowns are going to be bigger than other people's crowns. And some people's robes are going to be nicer than other people's robes. And I don't know about you, but I want a big old crown, hula hoop size. I don't want a little tiny John on, the, on my head that I have to put a string to keep on. You know, like I want a big old crown with a big old robe. You know why? You know what we're going to do with those crowns? Give them to Jesus. I don't want a little tiny, teeny, tiny, well, I got all my rewards in heaven, on earth, Lord. Here's a little crown for the one time I gave an offering without telling everyone. You know what I mean? I want a big old swimming pool crown that I can give Jesus and say, Lord, this is for you. Does that make sense? So please don't write off the reward system of heaven. Jesus is smart. He knows we're motivated by rewards. I can get my kids to do anything for a Hershey's kiss. You know? All right. Well, you and I are no better. So, uh, there is a reward system. This factors into the reward system. Uh, and I'll just say one other thing. In Proverbs 19, it says that one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and God will repay him for his good deed. Whenever you give to someone who cannot repay you, you're giving to God. Um, and you should just factor that into your budget. Put a line in your spreadsheet. Money I'm going to give away that I'm never going to see again. Crown down payment. Crown layaway. You know? All right. Is layaway still a thing? I feel like it is. At Kmart, probably. Now... This first portion, this teaching on money is actually broken up. Jesus does these first four verses, then he goes to talk about prayer and fasting, and then he doubles back to money. So this portion right here, verses 1 through 4 that's on the screen, is about a specific area of finances, which is what we would call charity. Okay? And the, the idea is that you want to give secretly to charity. 
that make sense? Now, again, without getting into judging people's motives and stuff, but I think you guys all have seen and will continue to see celebrities and wealthy people who give to charity and make sure we know about it, right? Um, I have the honor of not being rich, so I haven't been able to give anything that's worth uh, putting on Facebook, but that's the kind of stuff that we want to avoid. Uh, I, I shared with you two weeks ago that we had a, a wealthy person, I don't know who, not in our church, uh, a wealthy person who came to our entire denomination and said that they would match half a million dollars of giving that, went, that goes to missionaries. Kept it anonymous. No one knows who it is. I like that. They're honoring this passage. I'm going to come back and tell you a little bit more about that in a little bit. So, this first portion is about secretly giving to, essentially, charity. The next portion is about generously giving to the kingdom. Uh, this is not about charity. This is not about giving to the poor. This is about managing your finances in such... This is about investments. This is about spiritual investments. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, uh... Moth and rust are not as much of an issue to us nowadays. There were some people in the first service that still have moth issues, they said, but I haven't had anything eaten by a moth. It would take a colony of moths to eat my clothes uh, because I believe in mothballs. Uh, moth is not an issue. Rust is not as much of an issue uh, today as it was 2,000 years ago in the Mediterranean. Of course, they're living right near the Dead Sea, all that salty water. You know, like it was eaten up metal. You know what's, what's our moth and rust today? Uh, recession and depreciation are the moth and the rust of 2019. I don't know if you guys remember back in 2008, there was a recession. Do you guys remember this? Yeah. I know you do. Okay. In 2008, there was a recession. I had a friend older than me, significantly older than me. I had a friend who lost, during the recession, one million dollars in one day in his retirement account because of the, the way that the stock market had been impacted. He lost a million dollars in one day, which means he had a million dollars, a couple million probably. The guy was generally pretty, pretty good with money, but he lost a million dollars in one day. That's moth and rust right there, that recession. It was in his retirement fund, and, and, uh, and I'm sad to say it, but he ended up passing away before he was ever able to retire. And so uh, he didn't, he himself, his family has, but he himself has not experienced that uh, benefit. Moth and rust is also depreciation. Depreciation is when you buy something and it starts to get worth less and less and less and less. Okay. Um, so, for instance, if you buy a brand new car, $25,000, by the time you drive it home, it's like only worth $17,000 or some, some ridiculous amount. Like Things like vehicles, computers, phones, they all lose value over time. Now, sometimes, if, if you do it right, homes go up, but cars go down, technology goes down, 
Uh, unless it's an antique car that somehow made it through and then it goes, starts to go up again. Um, but depreciation, so here, here's an application of this, okay? If you have to have the nicest, newest car and it prevents you from giving to the Lord, this passage is about that. Does that make sense? Uh, because the money you put into that car is going to disappear like that. Right? Your car is not going to be worth more money. Um, my wife and I have committed to always drive hoopdies and jalopies. Uh, you know, cars that don't depreciate dramatically. So we've only ever had used cars uh, because we can't afford to see depreciation um, like that so that we can give a little more to the work of the ministry. So uh, I'm not against having nice stuff. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Listen, if you already tithe and you give to missions and you give to the poor and you still got money, then go ahead and live nice. You know, get a nice car, buy a big house. But if, you, if your nice stuff is stopping you from giving to the Lord, your priorities are out of whack. Does that make sense? So uh, we're not against having a nice car, having a nice house, just as long as those things come after you've given to the Lord. Does that make sense? Okay. I hope, I want to have a nice car someday. I just want to make sure I give to Jesus first. Um, so don't withhold from eternal investments in favor of temporary investments because the purpose of money is not comfort. Now, uh, Jesus is telling his disciples to give generously, to invest in things that are eternal. Uh, I found this information at the IRS website. Uh, well, actually, I didn't find it through the IRS website. I found it in an article that links to the IRS website. This is based on tax returns from 2016, and it's uh, essentially a person's adjusted gross income compared to their charitable giving. And then there's an interesting trend here. So if you look, a person who lives on under $15,000, which in many parts of the country would be considered poverty, they give to charity just under $1,500, which means the broke person tithes, essentially. And it, I'm not saying this goes to a church, it goes to a charity. So it could be a church, it could be the Red Cross, it could be the Salvation Army, it could be a bunch of things. But the person who is living in poverty gives almost 10%. If you look here, the next income bracket, 15,000 to almost 30,000, the number goes up, but the percentage goes down to like, depending on where you are, maybe 9%, 8%. If you continue this trend, this trend goes all the way. So let's look at this is the range I'm in. Quarter million. Okay. I'm glad you knew that's a joke. I don't know if you guys have looked around. We've got stains on the carpet. And, okay. All right. People that make between 200,000 and a quarter million give less than 5%. It's incredible that as people get wealthier, the percentage of their income that they give to charity, whether that's church or otherwise, actually goes down. The number goes up, but the percentage goes down. Does that make sense? So, like, 
This person making a quarter million dollars gives four times what this person makes, but this person's in poverty, and this person's wealthy. Does that make sense? You don't understand what I'm saying? So what that shows us is there is a trend that as we receive blessing and as we receive favor, we don't always keep in mind the source of that favor. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? Like we have to keep more and more for ourselves, which is why I think it's important for us as Christians to not always think of dollars, but to also be thinking of percentages. Uh, if, if, let's say it was one person who went from 15,000 and worked their way all the way to here. If they just simply gave at the same level, this number would be somewhere between 20,000 and 25,000, not 5,500. If they just gave it the same percentage. You, you following this? I know this is math and it's like afternoon, so you're zoning out. But I mean, this is an important principle and an important concept for us. The average American, the average American, gives 3.6% of their income to charity. The average Christian gives 4% of their income, which means the average Christian is slightly more generous than an unregenerate, unsaved, heathen pagan. I, I know that was harsh language. Mike, do you have a question? Yeah, adjusted gross income. So this is after deductions and things like that. Yeah. So the average Christian gives 4%. So what that means is the average Christian does not tithe. Because 10% is tithe, right? So the average Christian not only does not tithe, but does not do half of a tithe. Um, which could explain some of why it's taking us 2,000 years to fulfill the Great Commission. Right? It could explain why churches are closing faster than they're opening. Um, because Christians are only incrementally more generous than the world. It's frustrating to me that those of us that are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, know what Jesus did for us, know what the Great Commission says, give less than half of what the Jewish people of the Old Testament, whose spirituality consisted of grain offerings and goat sacrifices, give. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't have a great commission. The Holy Spirit was not dwelling in them, yet they gave two and a half times what the average Christian gives. If you tithe, if you give 10% of your income, you are among the most generous people in America or the world. So Jesus is telling his followers to be generous. Statistically, we have not lived up to that. I'm not talking about our church specifically because I don't know what you make. So there's no way for me to know that number. But I know the average American Christian gives 4%. That is not considered generous when in the Old Testament they gave minimum of 10%. Now, I do want to encourage us. Oh, no. I have one more thing to say before I encourage us. Sorry. Encouragement. I'm going to put that off for a moment. <laughs> Let me go back to the last thing Jesus said. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That word wealth, depending on the translation you're reading, it might say mammon in your translation. Mammon is the word for wealth, but it's not just the word for wealth. It's actually like a proper noun. It's a name. 
So, in the same way we call God Yahweh, or Jesus, the God of wealth was personified with the name Mammon. Okay, so you might find that in the ESV or the NIV or some other translations. Mammon was wealth personified, but not only wealth personified, Mammon was wealth deified. If you worship wealth, it was said that you worship the god Mammon. Does that make sense? This is why this is an important principle for us. So generally, I tell you guys, if you get out the Bible and a calculator, you'll do well. You'll live a good, godly, financial life if you can do a calculator and a Bible. But see, dealing with Mammon is not an accounting skill. You don't need a Bible uh, sorry, you don't need a calculator to deal with mammon. You need repentance. To see, mammon's not a mathematical issue. Mammon is a spiritual issue. Mammon is an idolatry issue. Mammon is a lordship issue, not a budgeting issue. And I think what we're seeing right here is mammon. As people get some wealth, they want more wealth. When they have the opportunity to be more generous, they actually become less generous. Does that make sense? So mammon is not just wealth, but it's the worship of wealth. It's the God wealth. And we don't want to just bust out a calculator and do some math. We actually want to repent and get breakthrough there. That's what separates this from an accounting skill. Now, if I can encourage us with one thing before we take communion. Um, two weeks ago, we took up this Great Commission Sunday offering. I shared with you that our denomination has been flooded with prepared, equipped, qualified missionary candidates who are ready to go overseas. In fact, right now, they are being commissioned uh, at a big gathering of about 3,000 people in Orlando, Florida. They're bringing 62 missionary candidates up and praying for them and then sending them out. That's happening probably right this minute. Um, the, the problem we ran into, our little fellowship of 2,000 churches, is we had more people than we had money, which is a great problem, I think. We had more people that were prepared to go overseas than we had the money to send them. So we took up an extra offering two weeks ago. I shared with you that we had uh, some wealthy person was willing to match every offering up to half a million dollars. And this is not Dan McCurdy. I know that looks like him. Uh, some wealthy individual was willing to match everything that was given by the, our group of 2,000 churches to help bridge this gap so that we can send all 62 uh, missionaries out. And I didn't say this to you, but two weeks ago when we took up this offering, I had a goal for our church of $1,000. Because I was like, this, you know, we're a small church, we're an urban church, and we only had like two weeks notice for this. So I was like, if we could just come up with a scrap, scrap $1,000 together, then that gets doubled. We can contribute $2,000 and help people get overseas. And I want you to know that the people that we're supporting are people like our own Chris and Bridgie Cook and Josh and Rachel, who live overseas. And someday, Dan and Rebecca McCurdy. Do you know how many kids they have to buy pants for? We should just give them all of this. Uh, that's the folks that we're supporting, in, plus you know, 750 other people 
but that we're supporting with this. So my goal was that we would try to come up with $1,000 and that that would be doubled. And we actually raised $1,753, which will then be doubled to be $3,506, which Scott said he would match personally. So 7,000, just kidding. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I got your reward. So, oh, all right. So I am very grateful that we were able to participate in this. Thank you for being generous and doing a good job. I'm gonna start raising my expectations now that we will almost double everything I think you're gonna do. Um, but I shared this information with you, number one, because it's in the Bible and you're not supposed to avoid things in the Bible just because they can be difficult. Uh, but also because giving is actually one of the practices Jesus picked on. He was like, you know, by teaching his disciples and those that were in the crowd, by teaching them this, he's saying, here's how you can give in a way that makes you more like me and not more like a Pharisee. You, you know what I'm saying? I know it might be hard for you to believe, but if you can give both generously and secretly, you'll become more like Jesus. You know, and you'll be more Christ-like. And in some way, God will make it so that your light shines before all men. So we want to be a giving people. I'll, let me just say this really quick and we're going to go into commu communion. I'm tired of the poor little city church excuse. I've used it myself at times and I think sometimes we can fall into that. I recognize 100% that Wissanoming has a 40% poverty rate. I get that. And everything's more expensive in the city. I get that. I just feel like the Holy Spirit is greater than all of that stuff. So let's see what we can do. Let's not write that off you know, because of some of the circumstances around us. And let's, all, let's be generous. It's not about a number, but it is about a posture of our heart to be generous. I would like to actually outgive uh, our own goals. I would like us to outgive ourselves. I would like us to outgive, not that I want to get into competition, but outgive other churches sometimes. Um, so I want to make sure that we're a part of that and that we aren't, I guess, underestimating what Jesus can do through us because of where we live and because of the size of our congregation, okay? So I'm challenging us with that. This morning, we are going to conclude by taking communion. Communion is a great example, actually, of the generosity of Jesus, because when it came to his generosity, it wasn't about giving time or giving money, but it was about giving all of himself. You guys know the story, but uh, the night before Jesus was betrayed, he had what we call the Last Supper, but what he, they called Passover. He shared that with his disciples, and in the midst of that, he broke bread, which is traditional, and he gave some to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Repeat this in, in remembrance of me. Then he took the wine, which they would be drinking, and he said, this uh, wine is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And he instituted what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. So here's how we do this at True Vine, for those of you that are unfamiliar with our practice. We have some bread up here that's been prepared by one of our deaconesses. 
This bread represents to us the body of Jesus that has been broken on our behalf. This grape juice, we use grape juice, represents to us the blood of Jesus that has been spilled for us. We do this in remembrance of Jesus, and every time we do this, we proclaim Jesus' death until he returns. When you come up, uh, John McManus is going to come up and lead us through a corporate, de de corporate declaration. When you come up, you're going to take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and then if you would like, you can make yourself at home at the altar and spend some time with the Lord. You can return to your seats. This is a meal that Jesus shared only with his disciples, and so we prepare it for those who consider themselves disciples of Jesus. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, we're glad you're here today. You might want to just stay comfortable in the seats. But if you're a disciple of Jesus, even if you're not a member of our church, you're welcome to participate in this. John, would you lead us in our reading of 1 Corinthians 11 and pray for us? We believe that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We believe that in the same way, we believe that in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We declare that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. With reverence and solemnity, we declare that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. We advise that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, for what he did for us. We thank you for his sacrifice, for his death, for the fact that he shed his blood, that his body was broken, he was wounded, he suffered and in pain. And he did that, Father, at your command, in obedience to you, so that we could have salvation. We thank you, Father, for our salvation. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you, Father, also that we have the opportunity of coming here this morning, gathering around this table, and remembering, commemorating, and celebrating the love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Savior say thy strength indeed is small child of weakness watch and pray finding me thine all in all Jesus made it all all to 
Jesus
sin had left a crimson stain, He washed it white as snow. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, He washed it white as snow. Would you mind standing with me? I want to pray and dismiss us. <clears throat> I want to make sure that we understand things like money and finances are not separate from the kingdom of God, but that Jesus taught about them as part of the kingdom. So Lord, we believe that you are not just the God of our prayer lives, not just the God of our families, but you're the God also of finances, because you're the Lord of all. And I ask that you would teach us how this stuff works in the kingdom of God. How a little bit of generosity in secret can actually change the world and help us to live free from mammon and free from greed we bless you, Jesus. We are grateful for everything that you've given us, and we pray for your empowerment to walk in freedom and also in leadership in this area. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.